I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So I am about to embark on a new level of discomfort for myself because I'm about to, for one thing, interview two people at the same time, which I've not done before. But we're also going to have something of a four-way dance because we're going to be speaking about someone that they're an expert in and they're also still alive. So it's going to be as if this, this amazing force is also present in our interview, this fourth person. So I'm going to go ahead and start. I'm going to start with a quote. We are living members of a living planet. We're like cells in the living body. That body is being traumatized. So of course we feel it. Of course. When we're suffering massive collective trauma, there's always choice. There's a choice about how we relate to suffering. Seems to me there are two ways. One is that we can let that suffering open us up to each other and bond us in greater trust and collaboration, shared strength, or we can let it divide us into feuding and conflict and bitterness. That quote is by a wonderfully wise human named Joanna Macy. She is an environmental activist, author and scholar of Buddhism, general systems theory, deep ecology, and is the author of 12 books. She is currently a very learned and wise 92 years of age, And like I said, it might surprise you to hear that she is actually not my guest today, but her work is the focus of my conversation today with my two guests. So this is, again, going to be a bit of a departure, and I hope as much a treat for you listening as it is for me. Even the preparation for this has been an absolute joy because it's really been a collaborative undertaking. So we're going to talk to two people, Anne Maxud and John Enkel. Have I said those names right? Ankali. Ankali. See? Mm -hmm. Well, discomfort from the start. And I got your Mine was right. Everybody gets it wrong anyway. I'm sorry. Yeah, you probably spent your life waiting for it and then correcting. Yeah. I live in Spain where everybody calls me Pepsi Red. It's Betsy Reed, but it's Pepsi Red or Pepsi Red or Mitzi. I just love seeing what they turn up with at mm-hmm. when it, the Amazon man comes and rings my doorbell. So sorry about that. But hey, yeah. hey. <laughs> let's get uncomfortable together yeah. from the start. Good. <laughs> so Perfect. I came, yeah. And I'll just tell people how I came across you because it was through the work of Joanna Macy. I believe somebody sent it to me. And it's a beautifully titled interview that Anne and John who make films together made, and it was called climate crisis as a spiritual path. And it was just not even a discussion, but Joanna Macy speaking. And it was absolutely captivating. I got sort of that all over body. Oh my goodness. I I can't believe she's saying what she's saying. It just landed. It gave me tingles. So I reached out to them and Anna John very graciously agreed to be my guest today on the discomfort practice, speaking about Joanna Macy, because Her work is so incredibly important and more important now than it was even a few months ago, because never say that fatal term, it can never get worse because I think we've seen it get a lot more uncomfortable recently. And we're recording this in the end of March, 2022. So 
we are a month into conflict in Ukraine. We're still in a pandemic. There's a lot going on. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce Anne and John. John Ankeler started his career as a producer of radio and TV programming in the 1960s and used mass media to empower faith communities advocating for civil rights and against the Vietnam War. During the struggle for independence in Southern Africa, he worked with and trained political activists there in the use of media to bring about social change. Before teaming up with Anne, his documentary subjects covered African prophet healers and marginalized communities who blend spirit-based Christianity with indigenous African beliefs and practices. He also covered the rise of the underground church in China against the backdrop of state suppression of religious beliefs and practices, and the impact of women's empowerment on healthcare and living standards in India. Just a tiny range of things and geographies there. But John is also an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church and a student in the Zen and Shambhala Buddhist traditions. And he's been involved for many years in interfaith dialogue around contemplative practice and social justice, which really landed for me because that is a lot of my own practice in the world, contemplative practice and an absolute obsession with social justice. Anne Maxud spent 17 years as a teacher of English literature, photography, and music before transitioning to film and video production. And once she discovered the eye-opening power of the documentary medium, she started bringing documentaries into her own classroom on a regular basis. Eventually, she began helping her students make their own films and slideshows on the issues of the day. Slideshows, remember those? Now we do Canva, but slideshows are still a thing. My students do them too. So she, at that time, was seeing her students producing things about civil rights and the Vietnam War and global poverty. And you can just sort of change the name of some of those things because they are still issues very live in our world today. And pictures and photos and, and film are still a very powerful medium. So Anne approaches filmmaking as both an artist and an educator. She sees film as a powerful means to an end to open minds and hearts and says, John and I have been at this work for a long time. We are, in fact, old dogs, not in the sense that we are slow to learn new tricks, but in terms of an old dog's calm perspective, knowing how to conserve energy for the essentials. Hence, they're named together Old Dog Documentaries. Since 1985, Anne and John have worked together to produce and direct documentary films about the subtleties of individual human experience and the complexities of our collective challenges. They offer their films as catalysts, and I can tell you from watching them that this is definitely the case. They are useful tools for education and activism that address climate change and making society more just. Two of my most near and dear topics, which is why I feel like I'm talking to my people today. So I'm really excited to welcome John and Anne as filmmakers, activists, those with perspective and experience, and also experts in the words of Joanna Macy. So I'm going to dive into my own personal discomfort practice here by saying I'm delighted to have them as old docs <laughs> sharing their wisdom on this episode. So let's get uncomfortable together. Welcome, John and Anne. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you, and Betsy. Thank you for such a, a nice introduction. Well, it's kind of easy. You wrote a good one and I just made it a little bit jazzier because <laughs> I say this a lot. I love introducing my guests live because a lot of podcasts, then they go back and they do the intro after the recording. And actually, I like making my guests uncomfortable with how awesome I believe they are. Because <laughs> they truly are. That's why you're here. Well, you've succeeded. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, especially because I tend to interview very humble people who've done amazing things in the world. And I think it's so helpful to have a dose of someone else's perspective on you regularly, especially when you 
are following your purpose to try to make the world a better place. I think it's easy to sort of labor away doing your mission, delivering the mission and actually not get some of the praise and and the recognition that is so deserved. So thank you for doing what you've been doing for your entire lives, no doubt, and definitely your entire careers. So I'll be weaving in Joanna Macy quotes as signposts throughout our chat, as you already know. But I'm going to start the thing that I always ask my guests as their first question. And let's start in alphabetical order of first names here rather than last names. Let's start with Anne. What is an uncomfortable moment that has changed your life as an individual and that's led you to do the work you do? Uh, I was thinking about that question and I don't think there was one moment, but I do remember a very early moment that I've always thought might indicate why I went the way I did. And it was when Life Magazine, I don't know if you remember Life Magazine. I do. Yeah. Wonderful, big magazine with great pictures. And they did, I think I was probably eight or nine, and they did a photo essay on poverty in the slums. Mm. And I lived in a lovely suburb in the New York metropolitan area, beautiful town in New Jersey with tree-lined streets and every comfort. And I think realized for the first time that not everybody had that privilege. Mm. And I can remember just poring over that article and kind of realizing that the world wasn't fair. And then all through my childhood, my family went to Florida one Easter break, and I remember seeing two water fountains, and one said colored. And I went to my mother and I said, do they have colored water in that fountain? And she explained to me that that was for Black people. So that was another memory that has always stayed with me, which was an outrage that they had to separate them. So I guess my nature is primed for sniffing out the unfairness. And so as I grew up, that was the direction I took. So I don't know Mm. if that's why I'm doing the work I'm doing, but I kind of think it might be. (laughs) (laughs) Also, that sounds like a chronic condition of discomfort. If you recognize Mm. unfairness in the world, if you have an awareness of that. You can't live comfortably. I'm projecting because that is why I do the work I do as well, a sense of injustice and you see it everywhere and you just can't stop. Right. Right. Ah, Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's, that's actually also a nice insight into how you grew up and who you are. And I thank you. All right, John, handing it over to you. Uncomfortable moment or series of moments that shaped who you are and what you do. Yeah. I think as I, question was quite provocative, really. And I thought of a number of things, but really what was most formative for me in terms of working with Anne and the kind of work we do, I think was I had been living and working in East Africa for five years with my wife and two young children. And during that time, my mother died shortly before we left And then after that, within a couple of years, my father died. And so my brother remained back in New York. And then I got word that he had died at a young age of a heart attack. And I remember when our family came back, feeling this tremendous sense of the rug being pulled out from under me, of losing all of the 
emotional and psychological supports that we get from our family because I had just imagined that they would always be there and suddenly I was without them and without that history and without that feeling of support and love that came from them. And I think for a while I tried to deny that, to turn away from it. But ultimately, as we know, that fails. And at some point, I just came to this realization that nothing lasts. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I need to really look inward, look at myself. And that set me off on a spiritual path. And at the same time, looking at the suffering of the world, the possibility of doing something concrete, addressing it directly uh, instead of turning away. And then discovering Anne and that she had the same basic parallel experience in life and same sense of aspiration and direction. Mm -hmm. And then that's how we got together and have been working together ever since really for, I think, 35 years. Yeah, I was trying to do the maths in my head. 1985 plus carry the two. Nope, math in the head, not a thing for <laughs> yeah. me. Yeah, since the mid 80s, really. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, oh. yeah. It's yeah. interesting because if, I mean, if people listening to this, think about your colleagues. And if you got to choose your colleagues based on the type of experiences that Anne and John have shared, how different would your work life be? You know, usually it's sort of we're thrust into things. It's like your family. You don't choose your family, you don't choose your colleagues usually but you very much chose each other because of a, a parallel experience with discomfort, absolutely with discomfort, mm -hmm. both within yourselves and about the world around you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How to turn discomfort into aspiration mm -hmm. and uh, a sense of the goodness of life. And at the same time, all of the, the sorrow the joy and the sorrow together, you know, mm. how to accommodate both, how to hold both in our life. And yeah, it's very Buddhist, isn't it? It's very life. Well, I'm going to jump straight into a John Macy quote, which actually you led me up to nicely because the first one I wanted to start with is very much about what you're talking about, about being numb to the discomfort. So Joanna Macy says, of all the dangers we face from climate chaos to nuclear war, none is so great as the deadening of our response. So where you've both come from has been about grappling with discomfort and deciding not to deaden the response to that, not to just be numb, not to just work all the time or numb it with alcohol or relationships or family or, or the various ways in which we all deaden our response to what should be stressful, actually, you know, mm -hmm. pandemic, climate change. So I don't know who wants to take this first, but what led you to interview Joanna Macy in particular? Well, I'll start. I read a book by Bill McKibben, who is a, a big climate mm -hmm. change person who's been doing this since the 80s, speaking of since the 80s. And he wrote a a huge book that I remember someone gave me as a present, and it was called The End of Nature. Mm -hmm. And I put it on my bookshelf and it stayed there. I didn't want to read it. There's just the title made me not want to read it. <laughs> and then many years later, after I moved to Vermont, he's a Vermonter. He teaches at Middlebury and 
he came to where I live, to Woodstock, Vermont, to give a talk at something that we have called Bookstock every summer. And he was the keynote speaker, and he spoke about his new book, which was called Earth, E-A-A-R-T-H, because he said the earth is not the same and will never be the same. So I was asked, because I have been a a filmmaker in town and doing stuff in the environment, to introduce him. So I had to read the book and I read it and I still have it because I'm amazed at how much I underlie. I mean, it blew my mind. Hmm. And I think that I was aware of climate change, of course, ever since Jimmy Carter, our American president, did a talk to the nation in his cardigan and got mocked for it. And he also put solar panels on the White House and they were taken down later by, I think, I well, I won't say but who, but I think <laughs> you can been. say it's the discomfort practice. Don't know. I'm that. not even remembering. <laughs> I think it might have been Reagan took them down, but I don't know. Probably. But anyway, I did introduce Bill after I read the book and I said that I had had his first book on my shelf for 20, 25 years and never read it. And he said that that book was in several languages on people's shelves and they had never read it. So (laughs) so then I said to him, he was sitting next to me in the audience afterwards. And I said, could we interview you about this? This talk was so fabulous. Could we interview you? And then we can spread that around. And he said, yes. So we did that, but that was just opening the door to, I think we had maybe 22 other people we interviewed for our first effort to make a film on climate change, which was Mm -hmm. called The Wisdom to Survive, Climate Change, Capitalism and Community. And that film was made in, I think, 2014. And so we wanted to interview all of the wise people that we knew of. So John, take it from there, because you were the one who was aware of uh, Joanna before I was. Yeah, well, I was always interested in Buddhist-Christian dialogue for a long time, ever since having graduated from seminary. And Joanna Macy had grown up in the church. And as she tells us in her interview, as we were having the conversation, she said, I always loved going to church with my family, she said, because it was the only time we were nice to each other. So she had those associations that it was a kind of holding environment that brought people into the best of themselves. And But she thought of having a career and decided that she wanted not to go that route because of the hierarchy and the patriarchy and the dogma and everything. And she said she loved God and loved Jesus, and she missed them. Until one day, as a young mother, she was in a bookstore in Germany and took down the Book of Hours, Rilke's Book of Hours, Mm -hmm. and it fell open to the second poem, which is a grand kind of sense of oneself and not separate from the world. And from that, she became a student of the Buddha Dharma and kind of brought those traditions together in a way for her that was an entree into work, the work that reconnects, she calls it. Mm -hmm. How do we overcome our sense of separateness? So that she seemed like a perfect person to talk to. And that's what led us to her. Also, as I think of her as a kind of lineage holder in this tradition of deep ecology that 
began perhaps in my experience with Teilhard de Chardin, who said the source of our confusion is thinking that we're separate from nature. And others, Thomas Berry, and who said we are the universe aware of itself, and Thich Nhat Hanh, who mm-hmm. said we're here to overcome the illusion of our separateness. So this is Joanna is stands firmly in that tradition of those who are trying to address this fundamental issue that the ecological problem is basically a spiritual problem. Mm-hmm. It's not understanding who we are in relation to what we've been acculturated to think of as the world out there, but is really not out there. <laughs> it's we're yeah. all a part of this Thich Nhat Hanh says interbeing, or Joanna talks about the interdependent system that we're all a part of living cells in a living body. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we went to her originally. And we spent a wonderful day with her and a long, long interview until everybody was exhausted. And she finally said, can we go get some lunch? And we did and got to know her better. Then we came back and we edited together the material on climate for our film, The Wisdom to Survive. But then this last year, at the end of the pandemic, we went back and looked at the transcripts of our interview with her and saw that there was much more material Mm -hmm. that we didn't use that had to do with the climate crisis as a spiritual path. And so that's how we reconnected with her recently. And then we're able to put this together in just a 20-minute piece and sent it to her to kind of approve of, or we wanted her to sign off on it. So she felt good about what we were using Mm. from material from a few years ago. And she loved it. She said, you've really kind of captured the essence of of my work and my heart. And so for that reason, we have been devoting all of our time in the last year or so to getting her message out there. Oh, I, you hit so many high notes there mm-hmm. with interbeing and rediscovering all the wisdom and also overcoming this narrative of disconnection that seems to have really become embedded in a lot of Western Christian traditions. It's all about the individual and particularly in Protestantism, where I grew up as well, which mm-hmm. is about, you know, it's about you connecting individually to God. But what has kind of gotten thrown out the baby with the bathwater there is that idea that we are connected to everything. And that it's not woo-woo or fluffy to recognize that there is an interbeing, that we are part of community, but also literally connected, you know, sort of atoms and molecules that we exist together in this ecosystem. But it's beautiful to hear how it came about, this work that you have recently put out with Joanna Macy about climate change as a spiritual practice. And I will definitely share that in the show notes because it it is, it's brief, it's 20 minutes long, and it's just beautiful. One thing that... Oh, sorry. No, go one ahead, th- Anne. Betsy, one thing I would say about it is that she did love it. Mm-hmm. And she's 90, as you said in your introduction, she's 92 now. She'll be 93 on May 2nd. And it's because she said, may I send this out to everybody I know? <laughs> That's a filmmaker's dream. Oh, yes, you certainly may. So she sent out 200 emails to organizations and 
to friends. And we started getting hits on Vimeo where the film is sometimes up to 3000 of them a day, which is unheard of for us because we've never been very good at distributing our work. So if people (laughs) find it, we're happy, but we're not, that's not a skill. William Sloan Coffin, who was a great activist and was my neighbor here in Vermont. We did a profile of him and he said, marketing this film with Ann and John is like marketing with a nun and a monk. (laughs) (laughs) Self-promotion, not your thing. (laughs) Okay. So Joanna became our distributor because bloggers started to pick it up. And then I got a call from Cosmos Magazine, which is this beautiful journal, K-O-S-M-O-S. And they wanted to run an article on it. And so I think, and now the people who are part of her, the work that reconnects now is international. So they've asked if it could have subtitles. So it's being subtitled in Japanese. It's already subtitled in Portuguese and in Italian, and somebody's working on it in Spanish. So it was Joanna that spread the word and her own word. And we are just beneficiaries of that. Oh, what a, that's also a beautiful behind the scenes look that just this person with so much influence has been so gracious in sharing their wisdom and also promoting it. It's just, oh, I love people in this tribe of ours because they are so generous because what they care about is the work and the impact and not their profile as an influencer. There is so much collaboration and connectedness in this work. Let's move on to the next question, because again, led by a Joanna Macy quote, we have so many juicy things to talk about. So Joanna says, the most remarkable feature of this historical moment is not that we are on the way to destroying our world. We've actually been on the way quite a while. It is that we are beginning to wake up as from a millennia long sleep to a whole new relationship to our world, to ourselves and to each other. And you could kind of get stuck being quite depressed about the reality of that quote that we have been destroying our world for quite a long time. But also there's a lot of hope there. It ends with a flourish, sort of an uptalk that actually it's an opportunity, as is all discomfort, to do something differently, to do something better. So I'm interested in knowing what the the intention of your work on Joanna Macy is and your intention for the world. What is it that you want to bring to the world? And I'm guessing a lot of that is actually productive discomfort. So take that however you'd like to, take that wherever you would like to. But yeah, what's your intention with your work? John, do you want to start that? or do you want I to think just- that the discomfort that we feel in the face of our suffering is the realization that so much of it is unnecessary. So much of it is the result of causes and conditions that we are responsible for. Very directly in some of our work, we've looked at policies of our government affect people in the global south or in those countries that haven't joined the kind of industrial growth frenzy to create more of everything and better of everything. And identify with that need as kind of what determines how we see ourselves and who we think we are. And those are the people who, in the issue of climate change, for example, have really are on the receiving end. We've burnt all the fossil fuels, but they are the ones who are suffering the result of all the damage being done 
to our air and to our planet. So I think that's where discomfort comes in, is that we realize how much of the suffering we're causing and how much is unnecessary and that we need to turn to the policies that are coming out of the industrial Western societies and look at our values again and, and kind of re-examine the whole thing. Mm. So that's a monumental task if you think of it as one whole great revolutionary effort. But if you think of it as just kind of piecemeal, as, as the whole is made up of all of these parts, and how can we, in whatever opportunities we have, whether just local or whether it is trying to affect politics and policy, what can we do to sort of re-examine all that and then reconfigure it in a way that is more accommodating to sustainable way of life. Mm. Before you like wait in here, Anne, I'm thinking about how I completely agree, but I think your work can also go a long way to leading people into that understanding, because I think we do have a different perspective because we are people who have worked in the developing world, lived in the developing world, or just been very intentional, proactive about wading into the knowledge of these issues. You know, we're looking we're researching them. Whereas I think a lot of people do, they just want to have a nice life and there's nothing wrong with that, but they aren't necessarily conscious of things like climate injustice, where the impact of the way that we live is negative on a lot of people in the world who we probably don't feel connected to. We don't realize who they are. We don't know where they live. So, and I think I'll, I'll sort of ask this in general and circle back to it if needed, but How does your work lead people into that discomfort? How does it lead new people into productive discomfort? I think that for climate change, which is always not only waiting in the wings, but it's here, but it waits in the wings as we deal with the pandemic. And for us in the United States, a completely polarized and dysfunctional democracy growing more and more dysfunctional. Mm. And This war, I mean, it's overwhelming. And then there's climate change. And I'm wondering how much the human brain is even designed to take in the fact that we're destroying ourselves. I think of it all the time when Greta, the Swedish girl, I'm not sure your listeners have, well, that she says our house is on fire. And everything else to her then is blah, blah, blah of what the diplomats and politicians are saying. Mm. So I've had a very hard time with all these layers of calamities and realizing that everybody I know is having a hard time. So I thought I can't just go under, but that's the feeling. And so I did turn recently to something that Joanna said, not when we interviewed her in 2013, but just a few months ago, she was being interviewed by a Buddhist teacher named David Loy. And I could just read what she said to him, if I may. Yeah, absolutely. We have an interview Um, rich with Joanna quotes, bring them on. (laughs) I was so moved by this because Joanna is 
losing her sight so that it was an interview, but you could tell that she's diminished. I mean, she's growing Mm. older, you know, Mm. John and I get that. (laughs) But he asked her something and she said how she's feeling about everything that's kind of collapsing. And she said, this is the one world we know, and it feels right to be here now. I feel so grateful to be here now, not because I can make everything better. Beloved planet, I'm a part of her. I'm like a cell in her body, and I'm going to be here just as long as I can with all my gratitude and all my love and all my attention. I want to give the gift of my full attention and free it from what I insist has to happen. I don't know what has to happen. Maybe something fantastic is going to happen, but for it to happen, we have to show up. And that's where I've been so helped because I can show up. But she goes on to say, find first, find what you want to do. Mm. And then you take a step and then another step. And then if you want, you join people who are already making it a reality Mm. and you work together. And with that understanding of hope, active hope, hope as a verb, you as a verb, then you are acting even when you are feeling hopeless. So that's been crucial for me. And this whole idea that she equates hope, she defines hope as something that you, not something that you have, but something that you do, mm-hmm. is making even my most small actions these days feel as though they're a gift to the world because she said it's our attention is the gift. So it's not so much what we're doing, as John said, it can be piecemeal. It's that we are doing something, I think. Oh, that gives so many people so much agency because it's like you noted earlier, a lot of people are at their neurological (coughs) capacity for discomfort. And that is fair enough because we are Mm -hmm. wired to just shut down when it's too stressful. It's too much. And we just, it would blow our minds, but yeah, that attention is the gift is a really beautiful thing. You get my bells here in Spain, but (laughs) yeah, it's kind of takes the pressure off to be like, well, if you do anything, it's a gift. If you pay attention, it's a gift. It's hope in action. I love that. I'm chewing on that myself. And not only that, why it's been so helpful for me, I've felt that I have to do things Mm -hmm. like what anybody asks me, I better do that. Oh, that's a good thing. I should do that. And I'm exhausted. And so what this opened up was that do what you love to do so that you're sort of in the zone because it's not what you're doing, according to Joanna anyway, it's your attention, your presence is what the gift to the world is. So you're much more liable to be present to what you love to do. So I'm saying no more than I have before Mm -hmm. and trying to focus on the things where I feel really present and excited. It's interesting because I've been reading things like a book by Adrienne Marie Brown called Pleasure Activism. And I'm hearing this also from a lot of sources that I really admire and respect, which is actually that doing the things that give you pleasure, doing the things that give you joy is one of the greatest activism and love for the world that you can do. And that totally lands with that because I I totally agree. You can't do what you need to do from a sort of place of depletion because that's not sustainable. It's like being a soldier. If you're a soldier, you make sure you're well-fed and rested so that you can do the things you need to do. 
So yeah, we can't do it all. And it's so easy. And I think anybody listening who is an activist or is concerned about the state of the world can relate. It's really hard to know when to stop. And it's actually absolutely important to know when to stop. But it's also really important not to ignore what makes you feel good. What are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? Do more of that. And you're right. It brings an energy, doesn't it? It just brings something beautiful to the world. And we need all of that we can get, I'd say. I think one of the things that has motivated Anne and me and sustained us in our work, because it can be very discouraging when you're taking apart all the causes and conditions for the problems and you see how monumental the whole task is, just the people we've met in this work, we have, in doing our work, we've tried to seek out the people who have kind of the wisdom of experience and who have found their own niche and their own path. And that may not be ours, but when we greet them and meet them and and open ourselves to what they have to share, we can feel that. Could we get who they are and we benefit from just their being in their presence and being learning from their example, showing mm-hmm good people doing the work of the moment, that is very much a source of fulfillment. When you talk about pleasure, pleasure coming in the form of just participating in that moment with them when they really come alive, Mm -hmm. expressing what they love about what they do and the depth of their commitment and discipline for it and the fulfillment they get, it becomes contagious or there's a kind of ripple effect that embraces us. And so Joanna, she talks about that a lot. She says, I want to find the people who are doing the work that needs to be done, the work of the moment that it requires, and be a part of that. And I think that's one thing I've loved about the work that we've done together is Anne and I both share that same fulfillment that comes from participating kind of in that moment with these people mm-hmm. who are, are doing what needs to be done. Well, amen from me. I do this podcast because it's just a great excuse, excuse to reach out to people I admire who are doing the work in the moment in a way that just brings me joy in life. And I get to talk to you about it. So that's exactly what I'm doing right now. And then it builds some sort of collective momentum, doesn't it? It's sort of, you get this feeling that, oh, I'm not alone. Or for anyone thinking, I still don't know what to do. I'm alarmed about the state of the world, but I don't know where to turn my attention. I don't know where to put my energy. (laughs) You'll know when you need to know. And just showing up and paying attention is the gift. Remember Mm -hmm. that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're doing something, you're putting your attention somewhere that is not typical. You're listening to a podcast on discomfort. So welcome to the tribe. But it's, well, this brings me on to another Joanna quote that I loved, which was about, well, discomfort on a major level. She says, mainstream society doesn't want to hear about our sorrow for what is happening to life on earth. What a deliverance to realize that that's not a private burden, but a shared experience with our brothers and sisters. And that ties right into what you both were just saying, which is about supporting each other to be joyful and to do the things that bring us pleasure. But 
How is it also important to support each other in expressing our sorrow? Because there is a lot of grieving to be done. We are losing, if anybody's paying attention, we're losing species that we have not yet discovered at a rate that is cataclysmic. Like we're losing the rainforest. It's in the news every week. We're losing the lungs of our planet. But also we've lost connection with each other. We live in I live in a city. We live in boxes in cities on top of each other and we don't know each other. And that is sad. There is not a connection to our neighbors, the people around us, you know, the sort of kinship that older civilizations used to have, or we used to have in more tribal societies. We kind of lost this. So how do we support each other in the sad moments now? We've talked about pleasure and hope. So where do we go collectively with this sadness and this shared sadness? I think we're so afraid to express that with our friends and family, because it's very hard for, I've experienced that it's very hard for people to hear it. Mm. And I don't want to be a downer. (laughs) So, but what Joanna says, and you read it earlier on, she said, even if we're not aware of it, we're feeling in our body, this trauma, because Mm. what's getting destroyed is us as part of and unseparated from the rest of the world that we think of as out there. So I know that there's a scene in The Wisdom to Survive when this lovely biologist who discovered that whales actually sing. There's this a scene that we got from Greenpeace where they were harpooning the whales, even though there was the international law against killing whales, this Mm -hmm. was happening. And the scene was bloody. And I showed The Wisdom to Survive at a big library in the community where I used to live. And so my friends were there and I was in the back and I watched them look away. I watched, I just saw heads go down and I knew that they couldn't bear to watch that. But there's also a woman in The Wisdom to Survive who said, we can't look away. Mm. We've got to look at this, allow the grief to come, and then we will be energized to address it. I think it takes a lot of energy to push down the feelings that we're all feeling. So let them up, trust that you'll still have friends afterwards, and then roll up your sleeves and get to work at something Mm -hmm. you love. And I guess the question that we have asked ourselves a lot is, can we, in the face of all that we're talking about, can we really live fully and with inner peace and courage, and also joy when we are facing this rapidly collapsing structure around us. And I think the answer, if we're going to follow Joanna, and maybe you, Betsy, (laughs) and John and me coming along, is yes, that we have to do that. That is the gift. And there's there's still so much beautiful. Let's not only focus on what we've lost. Ah, I love that. What a plug for moving toward not just discomfort, but giving that a specific name, sadness, the sadness that we are encountering and also witnessing it for each other. Because I think there is an element of you can't look away, you have to witness it. But then what's on the other side? John, anything to add? I'm with you 100% of what you both just said. And I think the temptation that's so easy to fall into that I succumb to is getting stuck in anger as a response, getting stuck in that whole spectrum of anger, rage, vengeance. 
who's to blame and how can we get even and tip the scales and all of that has a certain energy that can be creative, but it's very easy to get bogged down in it. And I think when Joanna's talking about grief, what she's saying to us is that underneath all of that anger, all of underneath that ill will, those negative emotions, is a sense of the aching heart. The Buddhists mm-hmm. talk about the sad and tender heart. And they also say there is just one heart, and that's what we share. That is what we have in common. We know that if we're honest with ourselves, and if we're willing to share it and see it in each other, that can be very empowering because that energy then gets turned from anger and ill will and vengeance into something creative. Mm. when we can share that, our aching heart with each other and realize that there is just one heart that we all all share. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's also a really good reminder to me that sort of those of us who tend to see injustice in the world and get angry about things, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That is what fuels us, but it's easy to get stuck in that or to even, I was in a yoga class by a friend the other day and She was talking about not watering the weeds. So (coughs) sort of those things that aren't necessarily the most beautiful things that cause discomfort to then not get stuck on obsessing over the discomfort and to know how long you need to be there because you need to be in there. You can't just rush on to like good vibes only because that's totally bypassing the value of the discomfort and needing to observe it. But then it is easy sometimes to get stuck or to cycle back into how stressful it is. So I've been dealing with this myself personal admission time. I've been having a really hard time, not just being kind of ill-humored lately. Let's put it like that. I've just been a grump (laughs) because it's the energy is a bit crushing right now. And it's really hard to not then let myself kind of spiral into old grudges. It brings up all the crap from the depths, actually, sort of this this deep discomfort of having a war in Europe, the other side of the continent I live on, and also just watching the toothlessness of governments trying not to cause World War III, but not apparently doing much. And then also this pandemic where it's like, it's almost like in the news, it's it's not happened. Well, it's over. We're not doing COVID anymore. And I just feel so irritated that it's brought up all the other stuff that I probably haven't fully dealt with about people and the past in my life or ways in which I felt wronged. And it's just been interesting to see how that stirred up a lot of things that I could spend a lot of time just thinking about. But now sort of saying it out loud and and being witness saying it out loud, it's a reminder that all of this stuff serves a purpose and it's time to then tidy those things up and do my next wave of letting them go and then moving forward in hope. Because I think we probably share a similar sort of strange excitement about what's on the other side of discomfort. And even though we, we see very clearly what's going on in the world around us with climate change, with social breakdown, with systems breaking down around us that we're part of, it still gives us hope, right? I think it does stir up what you said, the crap of um, the unfinished business within ourselves, mm. which then talk about not wanting to look at that. We can project out and on a world that deserves some blame. 
So I agree with you and John totally on that. But there was something else that, oh, I know. I think we owe it to the young people to not allow ourselves to go down like that. I mean, mm. John and I are old dogs. You know we are. You, And I know that John, because of his Buddhist background, sees the old dogs were the enlightened lamas, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, I can't claim that, but we had our two dogs as our logo, my beagle and his boxer. So we've <laughs> laughed a little bit about the name. But the truth is that both of us are 80 this year. I was 80 yesterday. And John Happy will be 80 birthday, in the- <laughs> by the way. My birthday's tomorrow. So I love a fellow oh, really? Aries. Yes. <laughs> you and Pearl Bailey. That Tomorrow's the 30th. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I feel as though we can't let them down and we can't just depend on them to do it. So it's a balancing act to support what they do and also to be mentors and models for them. We have a group in Woodstock called the Change the World Kids, and they go to Costa Rica and plant trees so the migratory birds have a place to go. And they're terrific. They're middle Mm -hmm. school and high school. And so a few of them are coming to speak at the UU church where I go and I'm supposed to interview them. And I, this is one thing that I would not say no to. I said, yes. So I think we owe it to all the young people who really are going to feel this way more and they know it. I think many of them know it or some of them. Oh, they definitely know it. I mean, we're seeing depression rates among young people, like teenagers just off the charts because can you imagine being 17 right now? I mean, being 17 is complicated enough, but in the midst of what's going on, it's particularly crunchy. I do. Yeah. I, I see it happening. I have a couple of nephews who are 17 and it must be so hard to be pondering graduating from high school in the midst of all of this. So I think this moves us on quite neatly to the last quote I wanted to share and have us respond to. So Joanna Macy said, we are causing the unraveling of life systems, species, and ecosystems of the vast interplay of microbial, hydrological cycles, climate that is unhinging life on earth. If you want an adventure, boy, what a time to choose to be alive, to get a chance to find out what you have inside you in terms of vitality and alertness and courage, what you have to discover in terms of what we can do together. And so in light of that, I think a beautiful way, this has been like group therapy for climate change activists, by the way, I hope some people listening have felt that. So in light of that, and maybe because of that, what's going on around us and what's going on within us and that we're all part of, what gives you hope right now and for the future? I have this, uh, we have a painting in our living room that a friend did, a Chinese brush painting, and it's waves breaking on a shore and across great mountain of rock. And I asked her what her intention was in doing the painting, this friend. And she said, the waves are smoothing the rough edges of the rocks. It seems like such a a long process, but the painting for me is a reminder of patience and perseverance and the need to hang in there. And what the background of the painting is all fog and mist and just a few clouds discernible in the sky, but they're covering the sun. But the rest of the story is that the sun will burn off the fog and the tides will 
subside and the seas will calm and the sun will break through. And I think it, it gives me hope that even though we're in the midst of the fog and this stormy, awful, turbulent seas and the weather, that it will, uh, it's all process. Nothing is fixed. Even though it seems interminable, the change, what needs to be done, still incrementally, there is always the, the seas subsiding and the sun breaking through and everything is in process. Nothing is fixed. And mm. so we don't get stuck in despair. Mm. And that is just following the rhythms of nature. It takes time for a tree to grow big, doesn't it? Mm, I love that. And over to you for final thoughts on what brings you hope right now and in the future. Mm. Well, maybe because I'm in Aries, that's the ram. <laughs> Fiery. Rams, yeah. <laughs> rams herself out of the chaos of the zodiac or whatever it is. I can hardly relate to that kind of patience because I don't feel we have the time. So I've been pretty hopeless. And I think what's turned it around is finally paying deep attention to the words of Joanna, where she said, hope and hopelessness are just feelings and they arise and pass. So I have realized that hopelessness isn't going to do me or anybody else any good. We don't know how this is all going to turn out, but as she said, but I know where I want to be and that's linking arms with other people. So it's enough for me not to think about hopeful, being hopeful. It's enough for me to link arms and find things to do and then enjoy my life. And I was going to say hope for the best, but that that negates everything. Yeah. Don't undermine your point there. (laughs) Yeah. No. And then if hope is something we do rather than what we have, something we have, and you know, I've just finished reading Jane Goodall's book with Mm -hmm. Doug Abrams, It's just brilliant. And it's called the Book of Hope. And she's in agreement with Joanna that having hope has to do with being part of the game. And then David Attenborough, these are old people that Uh, I'm I'm quoting. He's got a film called Our Life on Planet Earth. And it's his witness statement. And he's 94 Mm -hmm. now. And then just now reading the Dalai Lama and, and Bishop Tutu and Doug Abrams again, There is so much help out there. So I would say there's so much hope out there that rather than generate it myself, I kind of glom on to and borrow it. (laughs) You don't have to DIY your own hope all the time. That's a good line to leave people with. If you're feeling hopeless, borrow somebody else's. There's plenty (laughs) out there going around and all you have to do Mm -hmm. is just that film by David Attenborough was beautiful. It did. Mm -hmm. It made me sad. It freaked me out, but it gave me hope. I just what a treasure he is. But I also just want to recognize both of you for sharing your wisdom, because what came through to me as I look at turning a year older is just looking at the wisdom that I have accrued thus far and looking forward to gaining a lot more for as many years as I'm I'm given in this life. And I just want to recognize and appreciate what you're giving to the world, that you are collecting the wisdom of others, but you are also coming from a place of personal wisdom. And That has taken time over the years. I'm sure you weren't this wise when you were 40, but you were probably wise then. So thank you to both of you and thank you for your work. And thank you to Joanna Macy 
for her wisdom and her work and her, yeah, her words that we've woven into this interview. It's been a beautiful one. It's flown by. This is something I have learned. Interviewing two interesting people at once means I, I'm probably going to think of more questions I would like to have asked you, but we would have run out of time. But I just want to say thank you again for your time and your work. Well, thank you, Betsy, for bringing it out. It's lovely. And thank you, John, for hanging in there for 40 years. I think it's been 40. It's getting up to 40 years we've been doing this. And happy birthday to you, Annie. I (laughs) forgot yesterday because I was suppressing it because it (laughs) meant that it was going to be my turn right around the corner. So I'd rather just forget it all together. (laughs) Welcome to the discomfort practice, John. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Who was it who said it's getting older is better than the alternative? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're all grateful for the yeah. life we, we're living. Thank yeah. you, Betsy. Great Thank meeting you. Thank so you so much. Yeah. It was beautiful. Wonderful to talk with you. Enjoyed our chat. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like the Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five-star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast. And for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.